Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello, and welcome to Dark Poutine. My name is Mike Brown. I'm your creator and host. With me this week is my fine wife, Carol. Say hello, Carol. Hello, I'm fine. Wow. Yep. Thank you for the compliment. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Where's the beef? Um, it's back in the 80s at Burger King, apparently. <laughs> we went in the way back machine. Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the US or UK, text 741741. The service will match you with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. In the early 1980s, speaking of, near the small town of Rulo, Nebraska, a white supremacist cult leader named Michael Wayne Ryan and his band of followers took over a local farm, essentially stealing it from the property owner. They burglarized nearby businesses and residences to fund their survival after the upcoming Battle of Armageddon prophesied in the Book of Revelations. Ryan, a proponent of the Christian identity movement's doctrines with links to an anti-government group called Posse Comitatus, spewed anti-Semitic views, the supremacy of the white race, and planned to take down the government. In 1985, Ryan was arrested for the torture and murder of Luke Stice, the five-year-old son of the property's former owner, and the torture killing of one of his followers, 27-year-old James Thim. You are listening to episode 159, Away Game, Cult of Revolution, The Posse. He murdered a five-year-old? Yes. Wow, tough guy. I originally wrote this episode for my upcoming book, but the details of the crime were way too over the top for inclusion and out of place for that volume, especially uh, as it involved, like you mentioned, uh, the death of a five-year-old. So I pulled it. But in the meantime, you get to hear a bit of what kind of writing my book is going to involve. So that's fun. That's cool. A little sneak peek. Stephen King's short story, Children of the Corn, immediately comes to mind when I think about cults in the Midwestern United States especially Nebraska. In that story, 
Amid the cornstalk, led by nine-year-old Isaac and his brutal enforcer Malachi, a murderous pagan cult of kids kill all the adults in a small town to appease the evil force they call He Who Walks Behind the Rose. That, thank goodness, is fiction. I love Children of the Corn. That is a great movie. But there are stories of real cults arising in middle America away from more secular urban centers. A mistrust of establishment and rich city folks fostered by years of poverty has led to odd and often dangerous political ideas and vehement anti-government sentiments. Eager for the illusion of some kind of power in their lives in this chaotic world, it is natural for people to gravitate toward ideas that fit the worldview they already possess. Today more than ever, for an idea to take hold, it does not require any basis in fact. All it needs is for someone to believe it. The easier, softer way of the low road beckons us. Rather than utilize critical thinking to confront their biases, many human beings meander into situations that lead them to do crazy and sometimes evil things. With a simple internet search, you can find multiple stories of COVID-19 parties driven by junk science, put forth by Facebook Karens, attendees intentionally get together to sicken themselves and their children with the latest coronavirus to create, quote, herd immunity. With those things in mind, one can see how some disillusioned Midwesterners distrust the government and how resentment of the ultra-wealthy could lead them to fall into a cult. One of these was a group led by a bull of a man named Michael Wayne Ryan, a former livestock truck driver and survivalist in the mid-1980s. The group loosely affiliated with the apocalyptic Christian identity movement began in the small rural community of Rulo, Nebraska. Christian identity, born in America during the 1920s, is an Anglo-Saxon-based white supremacist group and was a descendant of another racist organization called British Israelism. According to the Anti-Defamation League, Christian identity is, quote, a racist and anti-Semitic religious sect whose adherents believe that white people of European descent are the descendants of the, quote, lost tribes of ancient Israel, end quote. Christian Identity, a group of between 25,000 and 50,000 members in the United States, believes that non-whites are soulless and that Judaism, as the rest of the world knows it, is a false religion spawned and followed by the children of Satan. The Identity claim that the Jewish imposters control the media and, behind the scenes, the government. According to the true word of God, they deserve to die and violently. Ah, okay, that explains that. That explains what? The um I was, didn't understand the whole Jewish being fake thing. Now I do. It's just phony baloney according to these guys. They have they know the answer. Mixing with other races for any reason is forbidden, and interracial sexual relationships and marriage are sinful. They twist biblical teachings for their own ends. They've even advocated for homosexuality to be punishable by death. They teach that God will send a, quote, true Savior who will restore the state of Israel to the rightful people, them, of course, afterward condemning all non-believers and non-whites to the fires of hell. It's so backwards, but I'm listening. I want to learn more. One of the more prominent and vocal members of the Christian identity in the 80s was a white supremacist minister, writer, and radio talk show host named James P. Wickstrom. Backed by his racist followers, he ran for office, taking runs at both the U.S. Senate and the governorship of Wisconsin. Thankfully, he lost in both bids. Michael Wayne Ryan met Wickstrom in the spring of 1982. 
Wickstrom was spewing Christian identity's hateful rhetoric called Yahweh's Truth, sometimes over shortwave radio, telling followers to, quote, fire the government. That sounds familiar. We know somebody else who said that. Mm -hmm. Ryan had been living hand-to-mouth with his wife and three children in Whiting, Kansas. When he heard the promise of a better life for he and his people and Wickstrom's messaging, he quickly became involved with a group who called themselves Posse Comitatus, or simply the Posse, all deputized to do God's bidding, whatever that might be. Wickstrom told Ryan to prepare himself for war. He said that the ultimate battle would occur in Kansas in what Ryan referred to as the Battle of the Wheat Fields. That sounds like a great place for the apocalypse and the Battle of Armageddon. I mean, you know, there's nothing else really going on there. So. Just wheat, corn. Wheat and farming. And farming. <laughs> Probably some ladies making quilts. <laughs> so let's, let's blow the whole place up. Let's not. Let's have the Battle of the Wheat Fields. Ryan was an eager follower and fervent believer and took paramilitary training with other members of the group. He learned survival tactics and began stockpiling for the end times as ordered. He attended meetings and seminars put on by Wickstrom and other speakers for the cause. Ryan obsessively watched and rewatched DVDs of Wickstrom's tirades. Within a single year, Michael Ryan became one of Wickstrom's most trusted followers. And what's interesting here is they're communicating over shortwave, they're using DVDs. I know they did mail out newsletters as well. It's interesting how now the internet has made all this so much more accessible to people. Yeah, it's just easier to get. You don't have to wait for the mail and stuff. No, and you don't have to rewatch a DVD because someone like Wickstrom could be ranting all day every day on YouTube. Exactly. <laughs> and you don't have to rewind any VHS tapes. No. Just makes all the brainwashing that much quicker. Please be kind. I am. Rewind. <laughs> Ryan brainwashed his children, conditioning them with his twisted beliefs and counted them among his followers. Ryan's eldest son, Dennis, was only 14 years old when he was taken out of school and sent to a posse training camp. Dennis, who'd been a normal teenage boy up to that point, now learned survival tactics, how to shoot, and was indoctrinated into white supremacist hate. In June of 1984, Ryan and his family moved their operations base into one of the two motorhomes on an 80-acre farm in Rulo, Nebraska. The acreage belonged to an adherent named Rick Stice. Stice was in a vulnerable place when he met Ryan. His wife had just died of cancer. Ryan duped Stice into allowing him and his followers to set up shop on the farm using what he called, quote, the arm test a technique that he employed successfully on his followers throughout his career. So the arm test was a little trick developed by Ryan to coerce the loyalty of his potential followers. And what he did was he would ask the initiate to hold out their arm while putting his weight on the person's wrist. Ryan would ask God a yes or no question. Should we be at this farm, for example, would be the yes or no question. If the arm dropped... The answer was no. If the arm went up, the answer was yes. It seemed to work every time, but it was all a ruse because Ryan was actually moving the person's arm. It's a Ouija board game. Yeah, pretty much. Either the subject was in on the plan or Ryan would hold the person's shoulder in a way that would allow him to control the outcome. Michael Ryan began spreading Wickstrom's messages across the Cornhusker state. He took to calling himself Archangel due to his given name. Ryan implored his followers to give up pork and practice a Saturday Sabbath as the true Israelites should. I'm still confused by that kind of Jewish thing, the fake Jewish thing, yet they're still doing 
the Jewish, they're the true ones. That's right. And so the other Jewish people, even though they do the same things, it's not the true Jewishness. No, because it's white Europeans and not Semitic people. Got it. Why didn't they just pick their own religion? That would probably require some work on their part. And uh, <laughs> you don't really want to have to think about it. Don't have to waste time with that. No. Ryan told Rick Stice that he could no longer raise hogs on the farm as they were, quote, unclean and went against kosher law. As Stice had no other income, the bank was then ready to foreclose on the farm. So interestingly, Ryan directed two of his followers to buy the deed from the bank, effectively stealing Rick Stice's farm right out from underneath them. So that was a plan. Pigs are unclean, but that's the only way I make money. That's like a mob move. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just happen to have these guys that can buy this farm. Exactly. Now that you can't take care of it anymore, we'll do it for you with yeah. our stolen money. It had been the plan from the beginning. Rick Stice became a slave on his own farm, and Ryan took over the house, forcing Rick to live in one of the trailers on the compound, regularly calling him, quote, a dog, among other degrading names. Rude. Ryan recruited heavily from the pool of angry farmers who were struggling to feed their families. He promised change and, most attractive of all, power. Ryan told prospective members that God himself had called them to revolution by way of their birthright as white Anglo-Saxons. Ryan preached about the coming apocalypse that would be signaled by a communist invasion according to his twisted interpretation of the books of Revelation. In 1985, Ryan had a number of, quote, queens living with him on the farm, and the rest, mostly men, lived there to serve him and his whims, no matter how aberrant. According to court documents, quote, Although Ryan was legally married to Ruth Ryan, he also, quote, married four group members, three of whom were themselves married to other men, claiming that this was done at the direction of Yahweh. Always. Always. That's what these guys are about every single time. Yep. Sex and power. Sister wives. But this is my wife. Nope, Yahweh told me that it's now my wife and we'll use the arm test that I will fake and you'll believe me. And, oh, is this my wife now? Oh, look, your arm went up. Oh, so, wow, aren't you lucky? Yeah. Ryan used the arm test to prove God meant that the women were to be his and the adherents bought it. Around 25 people were living on the farm in Rulo at its high point. More than half of them were children. They would spend hours listening to Ryan's rants or sit listening to audio tapes or watch videotapes of Wickstrom frothing at the mouth while preaching his anti-government and anti-Jewish gospel. From court documents, quote, The group also believed that Ryan and other members of the group possessed spirits of archangels and that the infant of a female group member who became pregnant while at the farm was divinely conceived. How did she get pregnant? I don't know. God oh, miracle. Did Magic. Did members of the group considered Ryan to be the leader and obeyed his orders without question. Ryan sometimes referred to himself as king. He claimed to hear Yahweh speak directly to him and allegedly saw visions in the sky. He further claimed to know what other group members were thinking and to be able to predict things which later came true. By way of the arm test, Michael Ryan also determined that Yahweh approved of the usage of marijuana. Smoking weed became a part of the culture on the farm, fueling Ryan's apocalyptic visions and helping him to control the others. Yes. So he's sort of like a Charles Manson in a yeah, way, Yeah, he too. does. He's got it all set up. The posse wanted to disrupt and undermine the government and to do so through violence, 
killing people in power positions, politicians, police, and judges. They needed equipment and cash to fulfill their destiny, rather than collecting the items required for their holy war by legitimate means like having a job. Ryan and his growing band of followers began stealing from local residences and businesses. They took provisions like food, farm machinery, and a massive amount of vitamins. Some of the stolen loot included an arsenal of weaponry and ammunition. Rumors of dark things happening on the farm circulated locally, but no one really knew what was going on. Police were watching, but the group was slippery. It was just a matter of time before someone would mess up. On June 25, 1985, police caught two of Ryan's followers, David Andreas and James Haverkamp, stealing a sprayer rig from another farm and tossed them in jail. Safe from Ryan's wrath behind bars, Andreas and Haverkamp spilled the beans. They prattled on about what had been happening at the farm, their tales of coercive mind control, rampant theft, rampant theft and brutal violence were hair-raising, but it was the stories of murder that made the officer's ears prick up. Okay, I'm ready. Cops raided the farm, and from August 17th to 18th, they searched, targeting areas explicitly mentioned by the two turncoats. Investigators exhumed the brutalized, decomposing bodies of 5-year-old Luke Stice and 27-year-old James Thim. The, de- the details of the two murders and how they came about are sickening. Rick Stice, his son Luke, 5, and James Thim had begun to express displeasure with Ryan's leadership. Ryan, who determined they were all enemies of the cause, said that Yahweh had determined that they needed punishment. Ryan used the arm test to determine the types of discipline to be doled out. Often, it was sodomy or other depraved sexual acts, sometimes involving the child, five-year-old Luke Stice, and a goat that lived on the farm. What? Yeah. While the rest of the group stood watching, more than once, Ryan forced Rick Stice and James Thim to sodomize each other, the boy, and the goat at Ryan's pleasure. When Rick Stice refused to perform yet another depraved act, Ryan threatened to amputate the dissenter's penis. When Rick again declined to participate in sexual acts involving his own son, Ryan threatened to skin the young boy and burn him alive. When Stice and Thim finally stood their ground, refusing to take part anymore, Ryan was livid. He was enraged that anyone would defy him. Unable to endure the torture, Rick Stice escaped at one point. He left his children's fates in the hands of the other adults on the farm and returned a week later, unable to reconcile that he selfishly had left his kids to save his own skin. His return did nothing to mitigate Ryan's megalomaniacal rage. And we'll take a bit of a break right here because I think we need it. Yes, please. And we're back. So what do you think of this so far, Carol? This guy is a twisted... Oh, it really took a big turn there. I was. Uh, I can kind of see how kind of all started. It kind of explains that. But then how he gets to this weird, uh, awful sexual behavior with kids and animals. Just like, what happened? It, it's like... I he, guess it just spiraled. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened. It just spiraled out of control. Rather than target Rick directly... Michael Ryan chose little Luke Stice as his target. In March of 1985, Ryan told the group that the five-year-old had fallen out of favor with Yahweh. A five-year-old had fallen out of favor well, with, with Yahweh. It's, you know, it happens. It's I convenient guess. for him to blame the five-year-old. 
They painted a large red 666 on Luke's back, indicating the number of the beast, according to the biblical books of Revelation. Over the next couple weeks, Ryan and his loyal followers subjected the young boy to numerous brutal physical, psychological, and sexual torture sessions. For weeks? Weeks. According to the Supreme Court of Nebraska, State v. Ryan in 1989, quote, Luke Stice died around March 25, 1985, after the defendant repeatedly shoved him, causing Luke's head to strike a cabinet. Luke was knocked unconscious the third time the defendant shoved him and died sometime during the night. Luke was buried the following morning in an unmarked grave that the defendant forced Rick Stice and Thim to dig. So this awful man forced this young boy's father to dig the boy's grave. Yeah. Ryan continued to torture Rick Stice and James Thim. Shortly after witnessing the murder of his son, Rick escaped the farm and did not return, leaving his two remaining children behind. Ryan turned his rage toward James Thim, forcing the man to sleep outside on the porch. He chained the man to the house like a dog. Ryan continued to torture Thim and gave him barely enough food to survive. On April 27, 1985, one of the turkeys on the farm died. Ryan, without a shred of evidence, accused James Thim of poisoning the bird. Ryan ordered followers to chain Thim by his arms to the rafters of a disused hog shed, leaving him there for the night. The only food Thim received over the next day was a bowl of granola. Ryan told the group that Yahweh had whispered to him that Thim would only last another few days. Over the next 48 hours, Ryan and the men on the farm, including 15-year-old Dennis Ryan, tortured James Thim without mercy. The group beat, whipped, and sexually assaulted him with a shovel handle. To prove their loyalty and unite them all in his atrocities, Ryan had each group member use a firearm to shoot off one of James Thim's fingers. Oh my God. During a lunch break, I guess they had to take breaks for lunch during this time. Ugh. On April 29th, Michael Ryan told his followers that he wanted Thim dead by the next day. They returned to the hog shed where they had shackled Thim. The men said goodbye to James, and James only said, I'm sorry. Oh, this is horrible. This is the way cults work, especially these violent ones. Yeah. Michael Ryan broke one of Thim's arms and used a razor blade and pliers to remove strips of skin from his leg. Ryan then encouraged Dennis to break one of Thim's legs, which he did. Timothy Haverkamp assisted Dennis Ryan in breaking Thim's second leg. According to Supreme Court of Nebraska, State v. Ryan in 1989, quote, Michael Ryan then bent down and asked Thim if he thought Yahweh meant business. Thim was alive at this time. Ryan then said, I'll cave in his chest. That's sure to kill him. Michael Ryan then proceeded to stomp on Thim's chest with his cowboy boots. James Thim died. This is just horrible. Cruelty. And all I keep thinking of is the guys that turned him in or mentioned it. It was like a relief for them to go to jail. Like if they had to live with these guys. Exactly. To get away from him. Yeah. The men put Thim's body into a sleeping bag and dragged him outside. They dug a grave six feet long by three feet and six feet deep. They unceremoniously tossed the body into the hole. Before they filled in the grave, Michael Ryan had his son Dennis shoot James Thim in the head to make it look like an execution. I guess you want to make it look like you executed the guy instead of torturing him to death? Yeah, I guess. And stomping him? During the investigation, 
Officers recovered stolen property with a value of over $120,000 U.S. at the Rulo farm. The arsenal was massive. They were preparing for war. Police also seized dozens of weapons, uh, including some that were fully automatic, machine guns, and 75,000 rounds of ammunition. The group had massive stores of provisions, including seed, charcoal, and months' worth of food, including canned goods and other preserves. Police arrested Michael Ryan and the other members of the cult. Ryan was charged with possession of unregistered firearms, interstate transportation of stolen property, and interstate transportation of stolen cattle, while prosecutors worked on murder charges, which came later. So that's typical. They'll charge him with what they know they can convict him on so they can build a better case for the big stuff. I know it makes sense, but it also seems petty when you don't see the whole picture. Just like, why are you worried about this when what he's really done is horrible? But I get it. Michael Wayne Ryan was charged with the first-degree murder of James Thim, possession of a defaced firearm, and was the only person ever charged in the second-degree murder for the death of little Luke Stice. Ryan pled not guilty to James Thim's murder, but pled no contest to Luke Stice's killing. Ryan's trial was big news. Mostly as Nebraska was not typically the kind of place where such heinous things occurred. The Midwestern news outlets covered the court proceedings heavily and locals lapped up the sordid details. The five other men involved in James Thim's torture and murder rolled over on Michael Wayne Ryan, testifying in horrific detail at his trial. Ryan testified on his own behalf, claiming he was above man's laws, that Satan had created them. Ryan also stated that Yahweh had guided his hand to commit the evil deeds undertaken on the hog farm against James Thim. Michael Wayne Ryan was found guilty on all charges. From court documents, quote, Although Ryan testified at his post-conviction hearing that he was adamantly opposed to the insanity defense and objected repeatedly to its assertion, he admitted he had cooperated with a psychiatrist who examined him on his own behalf as well as one who examined him for the state. Ryan further conceded that at a pre-trial hearing at Falls City, he told his attorneys to, quote, do whatever you've got to do, but I'm not going any further with your insanity crap. Okay. During direct examination of Ryan at trial, the following exchange took place between Ryan and his lawyer. Do you think you are crazy? Ryan, me? Lawyer, yes. Ryan, no, I don't. Lawyer, do you think you were crazy back when James Thim was killed? Ryan, no, I was doing what I felt we was told to do, whether it was what I wanted or not. Lawyer, you know that Mr. Liguri and I filed notice of insanity defense in this case. Ryan, yeah, and you know I argued with you about it. Lawyer, well, we were successful finally in getting you to agree that we put the question to the jury even though you objected to our doing so, right? Ryan, I finally told you if that's what you wanted to do, do it, but it was my objection and that's what you done. This doesn't sound like a crazy person at all. No. He knows exactly what he was doing. Yeah. They probably used the insanity defense because he was claiming that God was telling him to do all these things. So is it insane? He doesn't think he's insane. No. And neither does the court if he's found guilty. Yeah. Ryan received a five-year sentence on the gun charge and was sentenced to 10 years to life for Luke Stice's death. 10 years to life for the death of a little five-year-old. He was sentenced to death in Nebraska's electric chair for the barbaric torture and slaying of James Thim. You can torture a grown-up to death, but I guess if you admit to the death of a five-year-old, you're just going to get 10 years to life. Pretty crazy. 
Timothy Haverkamp, 23 at the time of the killing, was charged with first-degree murder and the death of James Thim, but eventually pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, earning him a sentence of 58 years to life. Haverkamp, prisoner number 37036, who now says he deeply regrets his part in Thim's murder, was first eligible for parole in 1992. He was moved in 1999 and served the rest of his time in a minimum security facility. Haverkamp's parole was granted in 2009. So, out he owes. There you go. Yep. In a rare move at a parole hearing in 2014, the Nebraska Board of Pardons voted unanimously to commute Haverkamp's sentence from 58 years to 10. He received a full discharge from parole. They determined he indeed was a changed man. So he was rehabilitated somehow. Maybe. That's what they think? That's what they think. Was it the influence that Michael Wayne Ryan had over him, his beliefs, and maybe he realized, whoa, this was crazy? I don't know. Maybe he did. It's possible. James Haverkamp and David Andreas were also convicted of possession of stolen property, carrying concealed weapons, and second-degree assault in the torture death of James Thim. Both of those men were sentenced to 26 years behind bars, but served only half of them due to their good behavior. Rick Stice showed up months later and told his tale of what had happened on the farm. Rick was convicted on cattle theft charges and given six months in jail with 18 months more house arrest. He was shunned by quite a few of the Rulo area residents after they learned what had happened on his farm to his son. Yeah, I can imagine that. And that that he had that run he away. That he left, yeah. yeah. Other cult members required professional deprogramming to exercise the demons that Michael Ryan had planted in their heads. Still only 15 at the time of his offenses, Dennis Ryan was charged with second-degree murder and tried as an adult in Thim slaying. Dennis' defense team claimed that the youngster was, quote, insane. They said he had been under his father's control and was not responsible for his actions. He testified in his own defense, claiming that his father maintained control by telling him that Yahweh would free them all from jail. That did not happen. After testimony from witnesses who said the young man knew what he was doing, his jury felt the same way and convicted him. Dennis Ryan received a life sentence. Dennis Ryan won a new trial on appeal and pled guilty to manslaughter in James Thim's death and gained release in 1997. He moved to Kansas. He's working as a long-haul truck driver, and he was closer to his mother and brother. He got married soon after leaving prison, and his wife later gave birth to a son. After a period of illness, doctors at the prison diagnosed Michael Wayne Ryan with brain cancer. Upon hearing the news of his father's illness, Dennis Ryan told Omaha Magazine he did not have any contact with his father and was unaware that the man was sick. Dennis said, quote, Best for everybody, good riddance, flush him down the toilet for all I care. Wow. Quote. There you go. In a news release about Michael Wayne Ryan, who had been on death row since his conviction, stated that he had died around 5.45 p.m. on May 24, 2015 at the Tecumseh State Correctional Institution in southeast Nebraska. Okay, Michael Wayne Ryan is dead. Yeah. Dead as a doornail. Good riddance. But the Christian identity movement is not. Those people who think that way are still around. We'd be remiss if we did not mention how the Christian identity movement continues to slither around the United States, recruiting new members to this day. As we said, 25,000 to 50,000 members of that particular movement. And it fluctuates up and down. The movement has carried on proselytizing through print 
publications and audio and video recordings, but they've also been banned from many mainstream social media sites. So the group finds its home and has active membership on the open internet, dark web, and the alternative social media sites that have now popped up. It continues to be influential to the point where the use of some of its ideals might have helped a certain recently defeated president achieve the White House in 2016. The Christian identity's ideologies continue to influence far-right thinking. According to Joseph Baker's paper, Christian Identity and Religions of America in Religions of America from Cengage Learning, EMA Limited in 2019, quote, Among hate groups, previously disparate streams of white supremacy have converged such that Christian identity, KKK, and neo-Nazi groups have come together into closer configuration of interests. While this process was in motion well before the 2000s in specific ways, such links between the KKK and early Christian identity theologians or the connections between Christian identity pastors and neo-Nazis represented in the Aryan nations. The synthesizing of these different forms of white supremacy has become much more complete in the digital age. I guess they can connect with each other easier now. That's right. And they see the value of connecting together. Yeah, because even though they're not exactly the same, they're very similar. So they can... As a large group, they can have more power. Baker points to Donald Trump's use of, quote, explicitly Christian nationalistic rhetoric as a major factor in his 2016 election win. The president continued to utilize this type of language to the point that, sadly, what would have been too appalling for public consumption has now become normalized. His actions emboldened neo-Nazi leaders and orders like Jason Kessler and Richard Punch-Me-Face Spencer <laughs> and others to organize the memorably terrifying Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. From the FacingHistory.org timeline on the Unite the Right rally, quote, On August 11th and 12th, 2017, the Unite the Right rally occurred in Charlottesville, Virginia. This was one of the largest, most violent gatherings in the United States in decades. The rally brought together various racist, anti-Semitic, white nationalistic, and white supremacist groups, including the alt-right, neo-Nazis, and the Ku Klux Klan. And the Ku Klux Klan. Jason Kessler, the rally's organizer, claimed that the rally's goal was to save the statue of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee. During the rally, hundreds of people came to Charlottesville to march and show their anti-Semitic and racist views. Protesters chanted, You will not replace us and Jews will not replace us, and blood and soil, directly echoing the chants and slogans used in Nazi Germany. Many brought full battle gear, including torches, weapons, shields, and flags with Nazi or Confederate insignia. Many openly gave Nazi salutes during their marches. There were numerous fights with counter-protesters throughout the day, and the violence ended with a deadly attack on counter-protesters when a car driven by a rally attendee plowed into a crowd, killing one person and injuring 19 others. The Virginia governor then declared a state of emergency and the rally disbanded. That was a really awful and scary thing yeah, to see. Yeah, that seemed to be happening a lot. I remember just, yeah, in that time. I remember that specifically with them marching with their stupid polo shirts on and their dumb haircuts and their... Uh, tiki torches those tiki torches you can get for a dollar and i had a couple in uh from the dollar store and i had a couple in the backyard and threw them away after i saw that i was like oh we can't have this in the yard this is horrible so at around 
145 on August 12, 2017, a self-identified white supremacist, James Alex Fields Jr., deliberately drove his car into a crowd of people. They were there acting as counter-protesters to the right-wing rally. Heather Heyer, a counter-protester, was killed and those other 19 people were injured. Fields was arrested after fleeing the scene in his vehicle that was badly damaged after mowing down human beings. At 3.30 that afternoon, President Trump addressed the nation calling for unity, but talking about violence, quote, on both sides, and refusing to call out any group specifically. The mainstream media was full of calls for Trump to take a stance against the groups and white supremacy in general. Three days later, at a press conference that the former president's advisors had organized to do just what the media had asked for, Trump went off script and made some disturbing remarks during an exchange with a reporter. Here's some of the most important parts of the exchange, including words that will haunt many Americans for decades, as transcribed by PolitiFact.com. The reporter said, quote, Both sides, sir? You said there was hatred? There was violence on both sides? Are the... Trump, clearly frustrated, cuts the reporter off saying, Yes, I think there's blame on both sides. If you look at both sides, I think there's blame on both sides. And I have no doubt about it. And you don't have any doubt about it either. And if you reported it accurately, you would say. The reporter kept after the president, who is now fuming. The neo-Nazis started this. They showed up in Charlottesville to protest. Trump cut the reporter off again and interjected, Excuse me, excuse me. They didn't put themselves, and you had some very bad people in that group, but you also had some people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me. I saw the pictures as you did. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down to them a very, very important statue and renaming the park from Robert E. Lee to another name. Trump has been voted, Trump has since been voted from office, one-term president, while according to Wikipedia, on December 7, 2018, James Alex Fields was found guilty of first-degree murder and nine other counts. Four days later, the jury recommended to the trial judge a sentence of life in prison plus 419 years. Wow. As well as thousands of dollars in fines. The judge accepted the jury's recommendation. The formal sentencing was scheduled to take place on March 2019, at which time the judge would impose a week, could impose a weaker sentence, but not a stronger one. On March 27, 2019, Fields pleaded guilty to 29 federal crimes out of the 30 original federal in the federal indictment in exchange for a federal prosecutor's agreement not to seek the death penalty. He was sentenced to life in prison on the federal charges on June 28, 2019, and he was given another life sentence on July 15, 2019. So you might be saying, wait a minute, what's going on? Why are we talking about this? There are people who are involved in this kind of thing who are also still involved in Christian identity. The things that caused Michael Wayne Ryan to do the things that he did are still going on. For example, just a few weeks ago, we saw the Capitol riot in, yeah. in Washington, D.C., where crazy people claiming crazy ideas went into the U.S. Capitol and tried to put a stop to the certification of the election by the Congress and the Senate. Yeah. In the process, five more people died. And this just keeps going. So this is still going on. These people are still out there. Yep. 
just just Google QAnon if you want to think about anybody who's a wackadoo. Don't Google QAnon. Yeah. <laughs> no. So that's it for this week's case. Pretty Yikes. interesting. And it's like, it's about, um, to me, it's about twisting people's ideas to fit your own desires, you know? Yeah. Like what was Michael Wayne Ryan after? He was after power. Yeah, he wanted his whole little compound of people to to not just love him, but admire him and do his bidding. Worship him. Yeah. Yeah. And he was such a sadistic psychopath that nothing seemed to spiraled. satisfy yeah. him. And he spiraled into the murder of a five-year-old. And just what And they then did. tortured another man to death. And yeah. tortured and stomped another man to death. And there were a lot of details, obviously, that I left out of this episode. But they were horrific. Horrific. If you want to learn more, there's a, a couple of books on it that I will put into the show notes. But... Um, for your own sanity, I kind of don't recommend you looking at those. Yeah. I know that we've been watching a lot of these cult shows like documentaries and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you just think, oh, somebody has to be really crazy to be part of it. No, it's kind of showing it's like a gradual process. And anyone who kind of is having a bad time or there's like certain vulnerabilities that are just taken advantage of and it could it could happen to anyone mm -hmm. I always secretly like to think oh, i'm too smart for that no i just got lucky right I didn't i wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time yeah so it's frightening cults and culty things and how it just the changes just get weirder and weirder and people just kind of go along with it yeah and how hard it is to get out yeah totally and but if you know somebody who's in a cult or you want to learn about different cults, there's a really good uh, website run by a man called Rick Allen Ross. And Alan uh, Warren and I have talked to Rick Ross on our radio show, The House of Mystery. And Rick wrote a book called Cults Inside and Out. And he really gets into talking about um, what a cult does and what it means to be a part of a cult and how he is now a specialist in deprogramming people. Oh, good. That's what I was just going to ask yep. because it just seems to get so dismal. Like, is there any way out? Yep. And it seems like he's kind of part of the solution. Yeah. So, so Rick Allen Ross, he's a fantastic guy. There's lots of videos about him. There's a Wikipedia page, but I will post the link to his Cult Education Institute uh, in the show notes. And that is it for this week's case. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, that was a toughie. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. And it's not like this happened in medieval times. It happened in the 80s. That's right. Ugh. Yeah. And like I said, things are still happening today. Yeah. And they're still driving violence. It's scary that a belief can cause such awful things. Yeah. Like look at anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, all that kind of stuff. I wish I understood how this, war this all works a little better because I guess... It if you could unravel that, you'd probably be a very wealthy person. You could fix it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I can fix it. No. No, I know I can't. I just hope I'm in the right place at the right time. I guess it is time to move on to some voicemails. Let's see if anybody left us a voicemail uh, this week. Pretty certain that there's going to be a few while we're waiting for the software. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can leave us one. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can do so at one 327 
5786 or 1877-DARKPTN. And uh, yeah, if if your email or if your voicemail stands out, you might hear it on the show. So let's have a look. Who gave us a call this week? Hi, Mike and Carol. My name is Courtney. I'm calling from Regina, Saskatchewan. I just finished your show, um, the episode, The Girl from Saskatoon. And I just wanted to say, like, I'm a huge Johnny Cash fan. I actually named my dog Cash after him. And uh, A Girl from Saskatoon is actually one of my, sorry, Girl from Saskatoon is one of my favorite songs of his. So um, I always kind of wondered why it wasn't more common knowledge that that song existed. And you guys answered that question in that episode. So I also think it was really admirable of him to retire that song after he learned of Alexandra's tragic passing and um, just made me fall in love with him even more. So thank you for that. Uh, thank you for your show. I'm a huge advocate for your show. Whenever anyone's asking for podcast recommendations, I'm like, check out Dark Poutine. It is just the best. So you give me something to look forward to on Mondays and just thank you for everything that you do. So thanks so much. Bye. Take care. Wow. What a nice voicemail. Thank you, Courtney. That was really great. And uh, we're glad that we could help your love of Johnny Cash just a little more. Uh, I love Johnny Cash too. I always did. I love your dog's name and your dog. I've right. never met your dog, but I know I love Cash. Yeah. And one of my favorite photos of Johnny Cash is the one where he's sitting eating a cake baked <laughs> yes. out of his mind in the in the bushes. Classic memes. Yeah. Gotta love the, the Johnny Cash. So thank you again, Courtney. That was great. Let's see. There is another one. Hi, Mike and Carol. I just listened to um, the latest podcast and... Uh, I have to say, Carol, you're doing an amazing job. And um, I understand what you said about, you know, the cases that are unsolved. But um, what I thought was absolutely beautiful about the whole story, I am a Johnny Cash fan, um, is that he did not play that song um, again. And it just touched my soul. And I feel for the family and uh, how unresolved everything is. And thank you so much um, for your podcast. They, um, I've been listening since I had uh, a brain aneurysm two and a half years ago and wasn't able to read. And I, they bring me joy. Thank you. Uh, joy and fear. <laughs> but thank you so much um, for, for that. Bye-bye. Well, we, we're picking up what you were putting down. That's yeah. that's pretty great. Um, sorry you had to go through your health issues, but it's really cool. Like people have said that kind of stuff before instead of reading, which they used to do. Now they would uh, listen to stories uh, being told like this. So that's really cool. And another lover of Johnny Cash. There you go. Yeah. See? Who can blame her? Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that is it for our voicemails. Aw, thank you. And again, if you want to leave us one, you can do so at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. Uh yeah, let's move on to Patreon. Patreon. The where the people are patrons of the show. Patrons. Patreon. To the patrons. Okay. So first up, as far as patrons go. We have Jasmine Burt, Jasmine Burt, and she is from a really well, nicely named place, Paradise in Newfoundland. Oh, nice. Yeah. Jasmine, thank you. Yeah, Paradise, Newfoundland. That sounds 
great. It does sound lovely. Is that where the biggest icebergs float by? I don't know, but it does sound like paradise. It sounds lovely. There's cod for miles. Uh, yeah, well, that I don't think anybody is allowed to fish yet. So. Oh, what? Um, but what does Jasmine do there in Paradise, Newfoundland, Carol? She is a ranch dressing expert. Oh, so you need to, be, are there different types of ranch dressing? Yeah, and she knows what is true and what is a knockoff. So don't try any fast ones with her. Wow. So she really knows her ranch dressing. Yep. What's her, what's her favorite, do you think? Oh, definitely classic. Um, I don't know the classic ranch dressings. <laughs> okay. No, that's up to her. <laughs> she would know. She's the connoisseur. She's like the sommelier of ranch dressing. You have to talk to Jasmine about ranch dressings. Jasmine, please illuminate us. Illuminate us. Illuminate us. All right. So next up from Burke's Fall, Ontario, we have Jennifer. Jennifer Stark. And what does Jennifer do in Burke's Falls, Ontario? She's an elite athlete. She's an extreme unicyclist. What? I know. She practices indoors in the winter because it's a little too dangerous riding a unicycle out on the street there in the winter, but she definitely does it in the gym. Wow. Yeah. But in the summer, you can find her traveling all over the province on her giant unicycle. Wow. It's a tall one with the really tall seats. I remember somebody in my hometown, Bridgewater, who had a unicycle because there was only one dude who did it. And everybody was like, there's the weirdo on, in his in his cycling pants on on his unicycle. She is not a weirdo. This no. is her passion. Well, yeah. It was probably his passion too. I was just being a dink. Yeah, exactly. It's more about you than him. Exactly. <laughs> unicycle on. Patreon. Patreon. So next up, we have somebody whose name I might struggle to pronounce. So forgive me if I slaughter it. Her name is Margaret Quitagook Oliver. Does that look right? Yes. Quitagook. That's what I would say. Quitagook. Okay. And Margaret is from Victoria Harbor in Ontario. And what does Margaret, whose name I shall not try to pronounce again, (laughs) what does she... What does she do there in Victoria Harbor? Margaret's got the most coveted job there is. Oh, oh. She's a penguinologist. A penguinologist. She knows all the penguins. She gets to go from zoo to zoo and country to country where there are penguins and she studies them all. I know it's coveted because I think our friend Matthew mentioned that job. Exactly. In, yeah, in the now Umbria. we know one. We now know a penguinologist. So talk to Margaret. With the unpronounceable last name. No, it's uh, Quitagook. <laughs> yeah, see, I did it She again. did, and she approved that photo that's been going around the internet of the penguins looking over at the city. Oh, that's nice. The one, nice. like, hugging the other one, looking over the city. She approved that. She approved it. This is legitimate. Oh, wow. Exactly. Well, there you go. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you for your service. The penguins love you. <laughs> and so do I. Next up, we have Lisa Curra. And she is from Clinton, Ontario. Lots wow. of Ontarians today. Thanks, Ontario. Thank you, Ontario. You guys. And what does Lisa Curra do in Clinton, Ontario? We have another elite athlete. I consider them an elite athlete, a parkour specialist. Well, that is really dangerous and interesting to watch. Exactly. I love it. And I can just picture her just like 
when they scoot through the windows really quick, legs first. Whoop, okay, so they can Lisa, get away from everyone. Lisa's doing that. Is is there a reason that she got into that? Uh, just pure fitness and love. Pure fitness and love she of high places. She started as a gymnast, but then it was so easy for her. She's like, I'm moving out of gymnasts into parkour because then I can do gymnastics anywhere and everywhere. Well, there She's you a go. troubleshooter. She's big on the troubleshooting. So interesting. I know. That is fantastic. I um, know. You should follow her on social media. <laughs> on the socials. Follow her on the socials. <laughs> yeah. Next up, we have Angela Ferguson, a.k.a. Jedi Ange. Ooh, Jedi Ange. I don't know where Jedi Ange is from, and I'm sure it's not Tatooine because that is not a real place. What? The planet Tatooine where Luke Skywalker was from. Wait, that's not a documentary? That's not a documentary. So where do you think she is from, Carol? Or where, I shouldn't say where do you think she's from. Where is she actually from? Where she's actually from? Yep. Sapporo. Sapporo? Yes. Isn't that in Japan? It is. And it just reminds me of Sapporo Ichiban. Sapporo Ichiban. Ichiban. Weren't they noodles? Ichiban noodles? Yeah, delicious. Ichibans. We know somebody in Tokyo, Mm -hmm. which is south. And we know someone, where does Dave live? Osaka. Dave lives in Osaka. You are correct. That's right. Yep. Okay, but back to... Sapporo. (laughs) Sapporo, exactly. So Angela Ferguson in Sapporo, Japan. What does she do there? She is a teen exorcist she exercises teenagers yes i'm yeah as a teenager i probably needed a good exorcism i know she's got a lot of work to do yeah it's a tough job yeah what like but she's careful yeah and she's respectful Mm -hmm. and she's helpful and she exercises the demons out oh and puts uh, the demons in the bottles and throws them in the ocean well there you go i thought maybe maybe i was mishearing and you said exercises the demons like (laughs) Okay, demons, we're going to do the 20-minute workout. Sweet in jazzercise gear. And All move right. it to the left and take it to a lunge. And yes, exactly. And two more. And three more. And three more. Oh, and we're take going it the to wrong the left. Way. Oh, wait. And two more. And one more. And, and then take it to the left. I used to get farty doing that stuff. <laughs> you did jazzercise? I did. Sure, I did. I watched 20-minute workout and did, tried to do yeah, that Yeah, I'm stuff. sure. <laughs> You're, there were, yeah, yeah, watch. I worked out while You wore sport. a headband? No, I didn't do any of that. <laughs> I watched it. For, I watched it for the plot. <laughs> Excellent work. I just learned way more than I ever wanted to know about you, Mike oh, Brown. Oh boy, I'm sorry. It's okay. But anyway, I was a teenager. And exactly. Gotta take it where you can get it. <laughs> yeah, well, I wasn't getting any. So. <laughs> oh my gosh! Good lord. Carol's all upset now. Oh no. Oh yeah. Let's see. So thank you to all our Patreon patrons. Let's thank you. You're the best. Right? Keeping us going. Keeping keeping us keeping us aw. And keeping Jazzercise alive and unicycles and penguins happy. <laughs> you guys are just making the whole world go around. Make the whole world go around. All right. So Wow. So let's move on to yeah, that's right. We are moving on to PayPal. Oh, nice. See PayPal? If, see if anybody sent us some donut money via PayPal nice. this week. Uh, we did get some PayPal hey, donations. Hey, thanks, you guys. 
Here's a little donut money in appreciation for everything you both do. I accidentally found your the show while I was searching for Jack Luna's podcast after listening to Monstro. I absolutely devour, devoured the 158 episodes in about two months. Whoa! My grandma is from Canada, and it gives me great feelings of nostalgia listening to you. I'm looking forward to what you think my profession is, and we'll follow up with some donut money and what I actually do. Carol, don't let me down. Oh, no. So this is Tara Becker. So what does, where, number one, where on the planet does Tara Becker live? She lives in Kazakhstan. She lives in Kazakhstan. Does she know Borat? She must. Yeah, well. Please say hi. I love Borat so much. Yeah, he is uh, an interesting cat. He could be a neighbor or maybe a local in her village. Could be. Oh, uh, yeah. Yep. Lucky. That is kind of cool. And so Tara Becker, what does Tara Becker do for a job? She it's is. very important that you get this right, Carol. I'm going to get this right. Okay. I feel good about this one because she gave us donut money. She is a bread scientist. So she loves all the flowers, all the pastries, all of it. Okay. It makes sense. So she knows, like, studies them, or does she bake as well? Both. Both. It goes hand in hand. Okay. It's a serious business, bread science. So she's got to make sure that the ratios between yeast and flour. And sugar, if necessary. Exactly. Mm -hmm. All all work out to make the most perfect type of bread. And she uses, she tries, um, she does experiments with all different kinds of flowers, as well as different kinds of yeast and other leavening agents. Well, there you go. She's amazing. (laughs) That is amazing. It is. Well, thank you, Tara. the world. Yeah. So keep on uh, learning about that bread because uh, I kind of love it. I'm a a fan. It's so delicious. Delicious. Yeah, there's Donuts nothing like a freshly bread. there's nothing like a freshly baked loaf of bread. There's actually chemicals that happen in your mind when you eat bread that actually like, oh, I feel better now. That's why it's a comfort food. Well, now I want some. I know. Make some bread. Our friend Irene Briand is back. Oh, Irene. Come on, Irene. Exactly. And Irene says, to the best guest host ever, Carol, I have one request. Where is it that I live and what do I do? Okay. Okay, I lied. I have two. Have you ever (laughs) kept wet pets in aquariums and what is your favorite freshwater wet pet? I have been keeping freshwater aquariums with fish, aquatic frogs, aquatic snails, shrimp, and aquatic plants for 21 years. Wow. And absolutely love my four water boxes and their ecosystem. (laughs) I have posted them in the barnyard. I'm Irene Vanden Duel in there. Love the podcast. I've got to go pick up my Nanaimo bars from the bakery and you can kindly go poop in your toques. Well, thanks, Irene. Irene, um, this is the best news I've ever heard. So, number one, where, 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 where is Irene from? We need to find out where Irene Brianne. Somewhere near the sea because she loves fish. She loves fish, but she loves freshwater fish. So and freshwater. She, okay, so we'll she put She could by be a near lake. a lake. Yeah. Where is there a lovely lake? Uh, let's find, okay. Oh. Oh, that looks beautiful in Tunisia there. Okay, so she's from Tunisia. And is it, uh, Tazir in Tunisia? That looks like where she's from. Exactly, because it's right on the lake there, that huge lake. Chot el Dierd. Chot el 
Dierid. Nice in Tunisia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and she can just quickly jaunt over to Morocco for a little visit if she wants. Or ha- hang out a bit in Jabil National Park. Oh. Yeah. Her life is heavenly. It has to be. And, and it's funny that she's near that lake because there's also a lot of farming area there because her job, she's actually a potato farmer. Oh. She's the head of potatoes. Does she feed potatoes to her fish? I don't and think her, so. And uh, her other aquatic things? She feeds it to her family. Okay. Well, that's part of her family. Her her human family. Okay. Okay. Do fish eat potatoes? I don't know if they do. Well, we can always ask her as head of potatoes. She's going to know. Right. And as a lover of fish, if it's okay. Yeah. So she's probably going to be able to post in the barnyard whether or not we're accurate about that or what. Can if, you feed potatoes to fish? Maybe potato flakes. You probably could. Fatten uh, them up. Maybe. <laughs> Do they eat like that? I thought they just like protein and plants. But potatoes are plants. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. We're See, she's confused. head of potatoes, not me, obviously. So we don't have currently any wet wet pets no. because we have two furry black kitty pets who and would they're mischievous so i'm sure that it would just be a danger to the fish but i did live with uh i had a roommate named tommy for a long time and he had saltwater and freshwater fish and uh what i really loved were the big bug-eyed goldfish they were my favorite i loved his angel fish because he had yellow ones and black ones mm-hmm he had all kinds of really cool fish. And yeah. then also what he did is he would use that water from the fish tanks. Mm-hmm. He would water that orange plant and that orange plant was just, we're in Vancouver and he had an orange plant that had actual little oranges on them. Yeah, he would use the water and uh, because I think it had the fish poop in it, exactly. it would act like a really good fertilizer. That orange plant was great. It thrived, definitely. We should have an orange plant in here. Uh, I don't think we have all the things. We don't have all the things. We don't have an orange seed. There you go. <laughs> we can, I'm pretty sure we can come up with one, probably at the grocery store. I think we might even have one in the fridge because I bought blood oranges this week. There you go. So there you go. That's what Irene Brienne does over there in Just to Tunisia. Recap, head of potatoes, in potato farmer in li- Kazakhstan. No, Tunisia. Tunisia. Living in Tunisia. Kazakhstan was the last person. Let yeah. me do it again. <laughs> okay. Just to recap... Head of potatoes in Tunisia. There you go. On the lake there. Yep. Lakefront property. Nice. Oh, man. She's living large. She sounds like it. So next we have Nicholas Brosman. As far as our Patreon goes. And it says, hey, guys, coming from Danbury, Connecticut, of these recently much improved United States of America, my buddy put me on to you about three weeks ago and I've been in the throes of an embarrassing, embarrassingly long binge ever since. I always like true crime. What's that? I was just giggling. A binge. Always like true, true, always like true crime, but truly love the way you guys discuss these stories together, factually, empathetically, but still with enough brevity to cause me to laugh out loud, with enough levity to cause me to laugh out loud at night that my wife has been waking up and looking at her husband of many years like some type of weirdo. Well, Carol does that to me. <laughs> as a crypto trader, if honest, I'm a bit let down with y'all as forward-thinking Canadians and techies in BC would have preferred to donate via crypto if it were possible. Instead, here's some USD, US dollars. 
I donated now. If you two sugar fiends could put off spending donut money right away, in all likelihood that money would be worth more in donuts in three to six months. So yeah, he's talking to <laughs> us about the crypto I get currency. It. Big so, coins, right? Yes. So enjoy, gents. Uh, yet respectfully, go crap in your go shit in your hat, as you'll probably be enjoying many d- more donuts ahead by accepting crypto, Nick. Um, I would love to start accepting some crypto currency, but I don't know how to do it. So, Nick, if you want, email me at darkpoutinepodcast at gmail dot com and tell me how I could add that maybe to our website or something. That would be awesome. Because why not? Exactly. Bitcoins. Yeah. That's rad. I would prefer that. To tell you the truth. Because I've made some money there. <laughs> that was back in the day. Back in the day. Yeah. Cryptical. Yeah. All right. So thank you to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your help to keep us doing what we do. And if you want to make a donation to Dark Poutine, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. And we'll figure out the crypto thing. I think it's time. And Nicholas, I know what you do for a job. What does he do? He's a Rasputin impersonator. Oh, he, he impersonates Rasputin. Rasputin? Or is it Rasputin? Oh, rah, 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 rah. Rasputin. Yeah, that's right. There you go. <laughs> Thanks for sort of Photos not me. provided. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much to everybody who helps us out. If thank you. Don't, you. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Take some time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow, please, on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. See you later. See you in a week. Yeah. See you next week. Bye. Bye.